Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. This is me, the host, Emma Gannon, and this podcast is me interviewing interesting creative people about the internet and our lives online. So today's guest I'm very excited to announce is Jojo Moyes. She worked as a journalist for 10 years, including a stint uh, in Hong Kong, and then nine at the independent newspaper where she worked as various things, but mostly as a news reporter and news editor. Jojo's been a full-time novelist since 2002, when her first book came out called Sheltering Rain, and since then she's written a further 11 novels, all of which have been widely critically acclaimed. You'll probably know Jojo Moyes' name from her number one multi-million best-selling book called Me Before You which was nominated for Book of the Year at the UK Galaxy Book Awards and went on to sell over 8 million copies and is still selling all over the world. She wrote a follow-up book to Me Before You called After You, which also went on to be a bestseller. And today I get to talk to Jojo, I went into Penguin to interview her for the podcast about the third book in this trilogy of books following the character Louisa Clark on her journey sort of beyond um, the death of her partner Will Trainer, who is the main protagonist in Me Before You. Also Me Before You was um, adapted into a film starring Sam Claflin and Amelia Clark. Um, which came out in 2016 and was a huge box office success. And Jojo wrote the screenplay for that. So it was really amazing to talk to her about her incredible career. She didn't shy away from talking about kind of the earlier, less successful days of her career, how it's quite hard getting a book published, how to deal with rejection along the way and deal when your first book doesn't necessarily go on to be that successful. And we talk about how we all have different chapters in our lives, how we change jobs and grow as people. Um, We talk about the power of listening to feedback from your readers, however scary that might be sometimes, and the excitement of being on a film set when you happen to have written the main characters who are standing before you with hundreds of people making it all happen. Yeah, I really loved this episode and really enjoyed talking to her. And I really enjoyed the book, Um, Still Me, is out now, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Here it is. Welcome to my podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, I just wanted to start off by saying that, along with millions of others, I read um, Me Before You on holiday, and... I had to like take myself off because I was getting to the end and I felt oh. like if anyone interrupts me, I will literally kill them. I just needed to be <laughs> on my own. And then we went out for dinner and I wasn't, I was in a bit of a daze and I couldn't really, I, I felt like I was still in the book. Oh, I'm sure loads of people have said that to you. Well, but. they have, but it's always a massive compliment because for me, the kind of books I like reading are books that make me feel something. Although you've just reminded me, I remember um, my Swedish publisher sent me a, a tabloid which showed the new prince, the newly married princess of, Sweden taking me before you on honeymoon and my first thought was oh no oh, oh yeah. <laughs> that's not a good book for a honeymoon I'm sorry for all the holidays I've ruined for the train journeys I've embarrassed people on uh yeah yeah the um, mascara running I'm down sorry. the face yeah I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm sorry because today we're kind of well it's publication day it is still me yeah. which is the third of this well, the trilogy, trilogy now. Yeah. Did you know it was going to be a trilogy when you when you wrote the first one? Not when I wrote the first one. No, not at all. I, to be honest, my publishing career was in such a p- 
perilous state at that point. I just wanted a book that sold enough for me to keep going as a writer. Mm. Um, and so when it really took off, that was a sort of extraordinary and unexpected thing for me. Um, but when I decided to write the sequel, which was partly on the back of the film, because I'd been working on the script, which mm -hmm. had made Louisa ever present in my head in a way that other characters didn't tend to be, but also because of the phenomenal response from readers. You know, so many people on Twitter, on Facebook, via my then contact button, which I've sadly had to turn off, mm -hmm. um, people asking me what happened to her. And I suddenly realised that the book was incredibly open-ended. And I kept thinking about the final scenes and thinking, well, how would you behave after mm. you'd been part of something so profoundly tragic and, I don't know, you know, losing the love of your life in those mm. circumstances? Although I tried to make the end kind of joyful, I really felt that fundamentally Louise was a sensitive, Louisa was a sensitive enough soul that she wouldn't bounce off into the sunset. Mm. And then I got really interested in, in the aftermath, which is why I wrote the second one. But I knew from the point I wrote the second one that I also wanted to write a third. And I saw it as being a bit like a horseshoe. So I would, you know, After You is probably quite a melancholy book in some ways. And then um, Still Me brings her up mm. again. I really love it because obviously she's so young as well in the first book yeah. so she's got so much ahead. Absolutely. But also it kind of reminded me when I was reading this book that you kind of can have different parts of yourself and different chapters of Absolutely. who you are. And I, I think you have moments in your life where you have your little epiphanies or your revelatory moments and I, I felt that for her there's a conversation she has with Margot which really makes her assess who she is and what mm. she wants and I don't want to say too much, but there's a letter she writes near the end um, where she talks about who she is and what she wants that made me quite emotional because mm -hmm. I felt that it was Louisa growing up. Also, the letter is obviously kind of like a massive part of the first book. Exactly. It's... And I love an epistolary mm, novel. I love a letter. Um, yeah, because, I, well, A, I think it's something that was a bit of a lost art, mm. but... Uh, I keep them. I keep letters that, you know, I've got all the letters my best friend ever sent me from the age of 16. And um, and it's lovely looking back and seeing how you shift and how how much you stay the same mm. as well. Yeah, because um, you've kind of had quite a few different chapters of your career oh, as goodness, well. Yes. Um, and um, I, I've obviously read most of your books and, and, and follow you and, and your writing, but you don't normally kind of look up what people did before, uh -huh. even though you don't assume they're an overnight success, because yeah. that's really annoying, it's never the case. But I didn't realise how much, at the time, you, you did have books out and you weren't totally fulfilled with how they were doing at the time. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's funny, when, you, when you're trying to write books, you're so obsessed with the idea of just getting something published and I still remember how it felt to have my first book, you know, finally published and out in the world. And then literally on the day that it goes out there, you realise, oh, that's not the end of it. That's the beginning of it, because now you have to make the thing sell. Mm. And and you can push that wheelbarrow as hard as you want, but you can only do so much as an author. So much of it depends on timing. It depends on retailers. It depends on whether people like the cover. It can be a million different factors that you have no control over. Mm. Um, and it was, it was immensely frustrating because I've, I have one friend, an author, who describes being an author as being paid to be disappointed once a year. <laughs> and for about 10 years, that's how my writing career felt, that I would put everything into something and send out my baby, you know, with my heart in my mouth and then have it kicked back to me. <laughs> but do you think it felt even better knowing 
kind of that it's not the norm to have that huge success because if if your first book had done that maybe it would have been harder oh sure to... no I know authors who've had massive success with their first book who then go into complete decline if their mm. second one doesn't manage the same level uh, I think the absolute joy of success later in life is it there is not a day that goes by where I don't sort of wake up mm. and think oh my goodness what happened you know it I really appreciate it and I don't mean that in a kind of cloying Hollywood sense I you know having been unsuccessful for a very long time I just really like it Mm, yes of course you just think you don't see rejection really very often um so when you read about it and when people like you are really honest Mm. about the early stages as well it sort of just gives you a bit more of a oh maybe I can try that yeah and and I you know the thing I try to teach my children is that you will fail you know, because life is about trying things and failing. I like that Beckett quote, you know, fail, fail again, fail better. I've probably misquoted him. But I I just think it's not about whether you fail. It's how you respond to mm. that failure. And, and in my case, I kept looking around and thinking, what are other people doing that is working for them? And I thought I have to be flexible. I have to. So, for example, one of the things I did was listen to Amazon readers. I I would read my Amazon reviews, which Mm. lots of people will lie and tell you that that's the thing they never do. I don't believe them. All authors read their Amazon reviews. But there was a common thread running through my early books, which was that the Amazon reviews would say things like, um, this is a good book, but you have to stay with it because it's really slow to start. Mm. And, you know, if one person says that, that's an opinion. Mm. If two thirds of your readers are saying it, you're too slow. Mm. Um, so I made a conscious effort to speed up the early part of my books. I mean, me, drag be- the... me before you is like, I mean, you're it, you're, you're straight it, in, you're there. in there on the first page. Exactly, yeah. but that's no accident. That's because mm. I was trying to listen to people's gentle criticisms. Mm. Um, I mean, it's a fine line. You have your own inner critic, which you have to be very careful <laughs> how mm. hard you decide to listen to her. Um, but I that was actually really useful to me in terms of feedback. Mm. And your 10 years, was it, of being a journalist mm. before? Obviously, it's the same kind of thing where you're unpicking stories and, and writing. Do you feel like it set you up in some way? Oh, hugely. I mean, the, the biggest thing journalism has done for me is it gave me the ability to see stories everywhere. Mm. Um, I mean, part of my journalistic training was to be given a page of the A to Z. You know, I don't know if people even have A to Zs anymore. <laughs> it was a book of maps <laughs> and told, go and find two stories from that page. Oh, my God. And so what you end up doing is walking around streets and looking up and wondering why are the curtains always shut in that house or why is that missing cat? poster been ripped off or what you know you start to look behind things that you might not otherwise notice and that was a really useful thing for me as a novelist because now I honestly believe everything is interesting I think Mm -hmm. that there is a story you know there's a novel at least a novel in everybody's home life Mm -hmm. everybody has something fascinating going on Um, but yeah I I hear the news with with a half an ear to what would make a good story. Mm I love those um, stories of ra- about sort of authors who like overhear a conversation and then just from that tiny little... Oh, I've done books from In that. a cafe. I've done loads of it. Yeah. I mean, The Last Letter from Your Lover, which was a book I wrote about eight, nine years ago, maybe more, um, was inspired because I, I was eavesdropping on some women trying to decipher a text message. Mm. And it really struck me how we as women can somehow build an absolute romantic mountain out of a molehill and how much you know they were reading into literally a two-word text and it just got me thinking about communication and how technology has actually obscured 
um, communication between mm-hmm. the sexes rather than made it clearer. And, and I got a novel out of it. That's amazing, because I was going to ask actually about how, you know, um, obviously you have you have a huge amount of readers who, who would love who love to engage with you. So social media is, is lovely mm. for that. But as you say, to get ideas, you can't really be sat online the whole time. Oh, no. And you, you have to be. And the other thing I always do if I write a book is I go as far as possible to the place or the thing that I'm researching, because journalism has taught me that unless you've got your feet on the ground and you can smell the smells and hear the way that people speak and uh, look at the billboards and all the things that make up the texture of the thing that you're covering you've only got half the story and so for example when I wrote Ship of Brides I went aboard an aircraft carrier because I was writing about life aboard an (laughs) aircraft carrier in 1946 and even in that day that I spent aboard, just so much colour comes in, like the fact that um, all the doorways are slightly too low, so people spend their first week with bruises on their foreheads because <laughs> they forget to duck, or the fact that water is a constant um, bugbear because you never have enough and it's always rationed, whether it's showering or drinking mm. or whatever. Um, the fact that people always complain about the food. All that stuff will only come from talking to people and and looking at signs on the walls and all the rest of it. Um, and every time I've done that, the book has gone off in a different direction. Wow, and also all of that detail. I mean, um, it, it, when the film came out mm. of the of uh, Me Before You, all of that stuff really, really matters, like the, the minor details, doesn't it? Yeah, and, you know, when, when I was writing Me Before You, you know, so much detail was important about the obstacles when you spend your life in a wheelchair you know just really stupid stuff that doesn't occur to you like people parking across the ramps the tiny curb ramps on a Mm -hmm. pavement might not seem anything to you if you're Mm able-bodied if you're in a wheelchair that stops you getting off the pavement and crossing the road it's such a simple thing Mm -hmm. so yeah I think the research is really a vital part of it and journalism definitely gave me that and it also gave me the ability to write to a deadline Mm -hmm. which is very important oh god yeah and what what was it like watching the film? It was sorry, the, you've probably been asked this a million no, 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 times. It was, <laughs> it was honestly the most uh, exciting, challenging, joyful thing I've ever done in my professional life. I I loved being on set, and I don't know how much of that was to do with the fact that we had a director and producers and two actors who I absolutely loved. I'm sure if mm. you didn't love your crew as mm. much, it would be a very different experience. But um, you know, to get up every morning at quarter to five, drive two hours around the motorway and, you know, then do a 12-hour day, you have to really love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I literally spent kind of three and a half months bouncing out of bed every morning, mm-hmm. um, although everybody then gets the flu at the end of a shoot because everyone's been working beyond their physical limits for yeah. so long. It was so funny. I'd been warned, literally the day you stop, you'll get the flu, and sure enough, everybody did. Yeah, everyone's so close together yeah, and exactly. <laughs> breathing on each yeah. other. My God, yeah, because I've only I've only been on I think two shoots and they haven't been filmed, but they've yeah. been kind of like big TV stuff, and um, it's crazy just how many people there are. Oh, it's as well. astonishing! I remember the first day I went on set, and they told me to go to a, a car park that they'd set up near Old Street in in London, and I drove there, and there were all these huge trucks and wagons, and they, and I said, well, where is it? And they said, no, 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 we now take you somewhere else, and they picked me up in a car took me to the set and they'd shut off about six streets around the back of Moorgate and I got kind of walked through and there were you know costume tents and trailers and you know catering tents and there was lighting and rain machines and people doing stunt bikes and it was like a just a massive 
circus. There were probably, I don't know, three, four hundred people all oh doing God. their job. And in the middle of it was Will Trainer walking down the road in a suit. And it was the most startling thing because he'd literally only existed in my head until that moment. Oh and then you suddenly realise there is now an industry of people devoted to working out how he should look, how he should walk, how he should talk, what his hair should be doing, you know, how he should be lit. It was... It was so strange, um, wonderful, but so strange. Yeah, and you, you don't have any say in the casting, do you, or, or did you on this one? Well, they did actually. Wow. They, they, Thea, the director, narrowed it down from about three hundred, and then they gave me a final six and asked me to pick my top three. And luckily, we were all pretty much in agreement. They, they most closely resembled the the characters in my yeah. head. I re I watched the film on a plane and oh. and that was embarrassing actually. Plane I've realized I have no critical facility on a plane whatsoever. I will laugh and I will cry in a way that I just don't if I'm in my living yeah, room. At I home. I mean I read something once that your emotions are heightened. I don't know yeah, how, how true that it. that I might be it. but I do. Yeah. I don't I must have looked really in distress but I just wanted to be left alone because yeah. I actually quite enjoy yeah, crying yeah, yeah. in a cinema or to a film yeah. yeah can let it all out but yeah um you were saying that the second book naturally might have been a bit kind of scary because the first book was yeah. so incredibly well received but what was it like now having the two that were so um successful i feel much more weirdly excited um about this one coming out i think i was very nervous about how people would react to the idea of a sequel to me before you because so many people seem to respond to that book in a very personal way. Uh, you know, as a writer, you you become increasingly conscious that 70% of a book is actually what the reader puts into it. It's only really about 30% what you write because everyone mm -hmm. has their own internal world and reacts to it in different ways. Uh, so I was quite nervous when After You came out, very relieved when it did all right. And... But this one, there seems to be, I don't know, a kind of a joyful appetite for it. I don't know if it's because people know it's it's the happier book or because they just want to meet Lou Clark again I don't know but mm. it's been really I woke up this morning quite kind of fizzy mm, yeah I know it's so exciting because you can tell that she's um kind of growing as a person yeah I mean I couldn't ways. have her bounce off after me before you I just I just didn't believe it would ring true but it's mm. actually quite a relief not to have her under a cloud of grief for this book you yeah. know she can refer to it and Will is very much a presence in her her travels but she she's working out who she is after the whole experience and mm. that that's kind of fun yeah it's such a nice balance of kind of you root for her but you also feel like kind of she's not perfect oh no god she's and immensely nice. flawed and I think that's why readers respond to her because you know she's neither perfectly made you know she's not a perfect shape there's a sort of running joke about how she's really not a runner's shape mm. or um, and, in, and in comparison to Agnes, the, the character who she's meant to be uh, an assistant to, who looks like a kind of Palomino supermodel. Um, you know, we've all got friends like that who make us feel like kind of dumpy little Shetland ponies. And I think that's how Lou feels. But it doesn't stop her being kind of massively attractive as a person. And, a, and I, I kind of like her ordinariness. And I think one of the things, you know, you were talking about casting, that I was really... I felt very strongly about was that I didn't want Louisa to be a perfect specimen. I didn't want her to be kind of Hollywoodized into a long-legged, gorgeous... I mean, not that Amelia isn't gorgeous, but Amelia has this amazing ability on one level to look like a girl next door mm. and then to look like an absolute knockout, and that's exactly how I see Lou. Yeah, that might, one of my favourite bits was just the, the bits with the tights. 
Oh, I know. So endearing. But, you know, that's so important to me that the Bumblebee Tights, the reason they've become emblematic, I think, of that book and of her is because what they represent is a woman dressing entirely for her own pleasure. It's yeah. not about pleasing a man. It's not about conforming to any social or, you know, fashion dictates. It's about just loving the joy of being able to wear something fun, not in a kind of Sue Pollard way. <laughs> you know, it's not about being wacky. Yeah. It's just about choosing how you want to feel by what you're wearing. And it's really important to me that Louisa dresses for herself. And that's why the vintage thing is so important and why, you know, the bumblebee mm. tights are a recurring theme. And in fact, in Still Me, they are responsible for a pivotal moment quite late mm. on in the book. Yeah, and the irony is that Will like loves that about her. That, yeah, that, exactly. And, and even though she wasn't trying to, and that tells you everything about that relationship because he he's absolutely happy to let her be that person, mm -hmm. and he understands what she needs to make her tick. Yeah. yeah. Does it feel in any way kind of um, kind of poignant that this is the last book, and oh that God, you? Could, I mean, it must well, be fact, really I'm, weird. Today. I'm really hating the fact that every interview I do, <laughs> they say, "Well, that's it," because. I, I will really miss her. She's um, She's been the easiest character of my 14 books that I've ever mm. written. She she's There's something about her that I find very easy to access, and that really doesn't happen very often. And she's just fun to write. You know, I love writing her family. I love her mum and dad. Mm. I love the characters that she's built up around her. So although the plot for Still Me was was hard to work out it took me a year of thinking before i realized exactly how i wanted the book to go once i got writing she's she's the easiest thing in the world for me to write so to say that's it is actually quite hard for me mm -hmm. um in a way that i almost didn't expect but i equally i don't want people to feel like i'm just you know churning out another louisa mm -hmm. clock but that's not what it was meant to be about once i realized it was going to be more than one book it was really about one person's journey mm -hmm. and the only way I've been able to kind of comfort myself and not get slightly weird about the whole thing which because it is weird because she only exists in my head <laughs> and readers heads is to say I might revisit her with a short story sometime mm. in the future I might just open a little window on what's going on in her life yeah um, but we'll see yeah it's kind of the whole never say never thing readers have been so good about her I just don't want people to feel like I sold out mm. if, does that make sense yeah I know what yeah. you mean I love the relationship with her and her sister yes because um I it just portrays the sister's thing like they were so kind of catty with each other yeah, sometimes but, but, but completely underlaid other. with love I mean yeah. I I didn't have a sister till I was 19 and then I got two in quick succession, my half-sisters. Mm. And I was fascinated by their relationship because they could be fighting one minute and then if I'd try and intervene, they were kind of thick as anything. And, <laughs> yeah. and I'd be like, well, how can you be punching each other one minute and then yeah. just completely a united front the next? Um, and I love that about sisters. And, you know, all my friends who've got sisters, it's the same thing. It's that... Nobody jabs at you like your sister, mm. you know, but equally probably no one will ever stick up for you like that either. Yes. I, I loved it. And I, I love the relationship between the two of them. Yeah, it's quite a unique one. Yeah. I find like I will confide in my sister with something so personal and private and then mm. she will probably use it against me. But also if anyone is horrible about her, that I'm like, I wouldn't have that. Yeah. I'm allowed to be horrible yes, about exactly. her. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Like all families. Yeah. yeah. 
But with the planning of the book, you said that it took a while to plan. Because uh, I wondered if you sort of just dived in with this one, not knowing where it was going to go. But... No, no, this was the hardest one because wow. I felt this huge responsibility about what message I was sending to Lou, oh, sorry, sending to readers about where Lou ends up. Mm. So I literally threw all sorts of scenarios at her before I started. You know, I even, there was even one where I thought, do I kill her and have her reunite with Will? You know, it's just... <laughs> but I thought, so many different ways it could so have many, gone. Yeah, because yeah. I tried to kind of approach things with a completely wide open mind. You know, where do I want this to end up? And the the thing I really felt very strongly, especially, you know, and your your listenership is very much of this ilk, I think... I have a a very strong feeling that, especially when you're addressing young women, I don't want them to think that I'm saying, or that Louise is saying, if you find the right man, that's the answer to everything. If you find the man or you find the money or you find the designer handbag, that's really not what's going to bring you happiness. The only thing that's going to bring you happiness is working out what pleases you and what brings you fulfillment and working out how to get onto that path. Mm. So the mo- most important thing for me is, is Lou's inner journey. And that's not to say there's not a lot of complicated romantic stuff in the book, mm. but I hope that readers will feel where she ends up is true to her and true to the kind of general message of the book. Yeah. Oh, well, I was going to ask, what are you most excited about with readers getting from this book? But that's that sort of sums it up. Really. That's really it's a really nice yeah, message ju- to end on. I just think, yeah, for young women nowadays, they get so many conflicting messages and, and life is hard. You know, it, mm. it is hard. And I I wanted this book to be optimistic. I wanted it to be joyful. But most of all, I wanted it to sort of say it doesn't really matter where you start out. And if if you've got the wisdom kind of to learn lessons and to understand stuff about yourself, you can actually achieve anything. Mm. You can go anywhere and achieve anything. And I really believe that. It's, it's an exciting time, I think, for um, this new wave, I feel, of kind of unpicking what success really means to yourself. It's extraordinary. Think, Things are shifting. I mean, yeah. tectonic movements at the moment. It's so interesting. Even today, you know, the, as we're speaking, there's been all this stuff about the awful charity do that... Um, the all male turned out to be of... a kind of you know groping fest for young women, and you really get the sense that women are just suddenly starting to have faith in each other and in their own voices and say, you know what, this isn't the way things should mm. be. Um, so I'm so I am excited to see where we're going to end up. Yeah, it's really crazy actually just how much since all of the Me you know too. the Me Too stuff yeah. came out. I kind of, and I'm not, not speaking on behalf of everyone, mm. but I personally, I just felt like I, if I was on the tube, yeah. nervous things that I would spot before, I suddenly felt more kind of in there control. There is definitely a, a female solidarity thing. And I, in fact, again, this was one of the things I really wanted to get across in, in Still Me, which was that female friendship and the support of other women is so key. You know, I, I hate that narrative that pictures women against each other because that's not how I believe life experiences. I think that's a false narrative that mm-hmm. we are fed from a very early age. So Louisa's greatest support in some mm-hmm. way comes from another woman in this book. Um, and then she mm-hmm. in turn supports somebody. I, I don't want to say more yeah, than that. Yeah. But th- at the same time as that news story we've just been discussing, there was the terrible story of the US gymnastic abuse by the coach and these 158 girls, some of them as young as 17, mm. who the judge, the female judge, has allowed to stand in the courtroom. And she says, every single one of them, she said, what would you like me to know? And you, I, I was mm. so moved by that because it was the solidarity of one woman just saying, mm. it is important to let these girls speak, to let them own their truth. 
And then the fact that women's voices are being heard and believed and acted upon and that women are supporting other women. And lots of those girls said mm. they didn't want to speak, but they got strength from hearing other girls speak out. And it there's a sort of clamour of voices and it's beautiful. It is amazing. It's beautiful. It is like very powerful, yeah, that, that it big is. style collaboration as well. You know, in an age where it feels that a lot of women's rights are being pushed back against... I find it so heartening, the idea of this collective support and movement, the, the march, the, the Me Too movement. Mm. I, I feel that women and young women are, are becoming a little bit more politicised and understanding that they are each other's supports and not each other's enemies. Yes, definitely. And I really, truly believe that everyone does feel that there's just so much more room yeah. now. And it's really exciting. Yeah, it is. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having for me. on, being a brilliant guest. and. Um, Still Me is out now, so... From today. From today, so <laughs> yeah. you can get it from all, everywhere. <laughs> um, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.